Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. We've got something a little bit different for you tonight. I am here with Kevin. Hey. And we have joining us our old friend, Stephen, who is an attorney in San Antonio, Texas, a member of the DSA, and former host of a really cool podcast called Supreme Leap Forward. Well, we say former. I guess in theory we could like start tomorrow if we wanted to. We just yeah, we that's can, true. You know, we just don't for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but it, okay, so it, uh, if we did at some current point want host. to, then uh, then it's still there. We're still like the like only and premier uh, left legal analysis on bad legal analysis on the uh, on the internet. Sure. Yeah, it, I honestly miss it. I listen to it like every week or whenever you put them out. Actually. Man, that podcast was so much more work than the Regrettable Century, though. <laughs> like, like you, you basically had to be get, we, Stephen and I had to uh, be like putting together legal opinions on things on a regular basis, rather than just sort of research, re- reading through uh, a handful of selected titles and then discussing it with other smart people. It was like we had to present uh, defensible legal opinions about stuff uh, on a regular basis, and that was. That was fucking hard, man. Yeah, we had to be like, we had to be like ad hoc uh, Supreme Court justices, like yeah, we, with no no clerks <laughs> doing our work for us, and uh, <laughs> and most of the law is like really outside of. I, I mean, so we're doing this episode today on 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 sort of legal issues, I guess, not to give a spoiler, but but the law is fucking huge. And I'm only good at like one part of it, <laughs> and yeah, and and that's how that's how most lawyers are. Like, I, like I know criminal law. Like, I'm I'm really really good at that, but I don't know a lot else. Like, I I made it through law school and and did enough to be able to pass a bar exam and stuff. But like, in terms of right. you know my my actual expertise, like I can have an opinion about stuff, but it may not be a good opinion. It's just it's just sort of my gut instinct on what is what's the right outcome and then mm-hmm. figuring out sort of the legal methodology to arriving at that outcome yeah yeah no absolutely like a, a, an, an attorney's opinion on on general legal matters that they're not an expert in are only slightly more trustworthy than a, an average member of the public's opinion on it right right uh, we, we we basically have like a, a more educated sense of what you know what relevant things to consider when talking about the legality of something, uh, but beyond that, we don't have uh, unless it's your area of expertise that you're you're discussing. You you really don't have uh, a greater uh, say than anybody else. Really, do you think that's on purpose that the law is so like inaccessible? Mm. Yes. Is it written that way to keep uh, lay people from being able to understand it? I th- it is my opinion. Uh, Definitive that that is definitively the case. I think there is some degree of of it that is you know a, a, as with absolutely any area of study that exists or could exist in the world. There's necessarily going to be jargon that builds up, and there's going mm-hmm. to be sort of systems of thought, and that it's useful to be a, a already prior uh, have a, a, an already existing acquaintance with, and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it is my professional opinion as an attorney that uh, a lot of what attorneys do is uh, gatekeeping and ensuring that they have uh, a role to play that has to be paid for by other people. Uh, they're, they're ensuring their own livelihoods. 
you know, as a profession. I, I think that a lot of the like black letter law, uh, which is just you know, sort of a, a I guess term of art in, in legal speak, which just means that just the the way that a certain law is written, like like assault, like the way the the assault law is written, or the way that um, you know, say negligence is written. Uh, and I think that understanding like what the sort of things are proscribed is not necessarily inaccessible by the layperson. What I do think is that the procedural mechanisms for applying that law or for uh, navigating how that like the, the practical reality of confronting that law, like in a courtroom, I think that stuff is designed to keep lay people out of the law. Like just yeah. mm-hmm. just the rules for like how you get your foot into the courthouse uh, and and have a successful case. Like we've like made a lot of these like really arcane sort of limitations for being able to like file a lawsuit. Like there's there's filing yeah. fees. There's a number of things that yeah. you have to be able Un- to do. unnecessarily arcane. Yeah, and uh, and you have to be able to like plead everything in your lawsuit correctly the first time. Otherwise, you risk not being able to raise certain issues. And if you're a lay person, like you walk in and you don't you don't know any of that, uh, right? So that's true. That's a that's that's a really good point and a really good way to frame it. Yeah, that's what everybody says. That you, I mean, when you're in law school, uh, a common refrain from professors is, uh, "I'll make you a deal. You can write all of the all of the laws, and I'll write all the procedure, and we'll see who wins." yeah i mean just given the nature of our law system which is based on the english common law system the english common law system goes back to rulings that happened in anglo-saxon england you know Mm -hmm. i mean it's 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 based on a precedence that were that began in anglo-saxon england and that just sort of were ruled on again and ruled on again and carried forward into the anglo-american law tradition yeah. So, yeah, necessarily you're going to have a bunch of just weird stuff in there. And specifically in places like Texas and Louisiana where you have mixtures of uh, continental law that go back to Spanish and French law, uh, it's going to be even weirder. Like, I remember reading when I was in grad school, because I studied uh, medieval law in grad school, uh, a little bit about medieval Spanish water rights mm-hmm. and how they informed Texas water rights. And I was, and that to me that just blew my mind. It's, yeah. We are really still following medieval Spanish legal precedents. That really stood out to me in property law, in particular, of all the uh, areas of study in the law. Uh, studying property law really stood out to me as uh, um, a subset that is remarkably anchored in uh, ancient, <laughs> seemingly ancient history, uh, in pre-capitalist law. Uh, the, fa- the foundations of the modern property law that we continue to use that are in daily use in daily use in our in our um, political economy in the United States are rooted in principles and frameworks established under feudal law or fe- feudalism. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. wild. It's fucking wild. Well, um, so, so we've already we've already of... talked about feudalism on one episode. So now we gotta. right actually i'm i will link that episode in the show notes because i did do an episode with steven and kevin which by the way if you hadn't picked up by now kevin was also on the supremely forward podcast or is 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 is, yeah still it's still going sort of (laughs) right right this is this is sort of a collaboration episode this is part two of uh of 
my guest appearance on the show where I talked about medieval law. But I'll link yeah. that in the show notes. That was a fun episode. I just went it back was. and listened to it recently, and uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I learned a lot. Yeah, maybe we could like rehash something like that on uh, on uh, Regrettable Century and talk about medieval shit. Yeah, that'd be. Fun. I know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's your that's your bag. It is. It is um, that in fascism apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, fascism is not my bag. Studying and talking about fascism is my bag. Okay, so we've established the arcane nature of American law. Or not just American, I'm guessing the Anglo-American tradition of law. And what I kind of wanted to start the conversation off with is just what a sort of layman's breakdown of Marxist criminology is. Like, what is Marxist criminology and how does it differ from bourgeois criminology? Okay. So, I, I mean, I don't want to necessarily use the word bourgeois criminology. Uh, what I would... What, yeah, that's fine, What please. I would probably... <laughs> so... What criminology is, is is it's just a um, a methodology for determining, you know, what kind of person is likely to commit crimes, why crimes occur, what are the what are the factors that that go into understanding why a certain person, or most soci- sociologically speaking, like why a group of people, uh, why a community is more predisposed to uh, to committing crimes. Uh, than another community, and so there's there's a lot of different theories for why people commit crimes. There's behavioral theories, there's definitional theories, there's labeling theories, uh, and then there's what's called conflict criminology. And conflict mm-hmm. criminology sort of addresses the um, contradictions in sort of a, a you know sort of Marxist way of understanding it, the contradictions of of you know existing under capitalism and the forces that are constantly operating against poor people in general and the working classes that are sort of making their lives more stressful, making their lives more complicated, and the way that people respond to those kinds of, um, I guess, triggers, for lack of a better word, Uh, the way that those things, you know, occur to make one's life more difficult. People respond in sometimes predictable and sometimes unpredictable ways and often in unlawful ways to give uh, to give sort of a, uh, I guess, crude analysis. I just started watching uh, Shameless. Have you all ever seen Shameless? Mm -hmm. The thing that I liked about Shameless is the way because I I do nothing but criminal defense and predominantly uh, indigent criminal defense, like the bulk of my caseload is is appointed indigent clients and watching shameless i see so much of my clients Mm. in those characters in that the way that they just continue to make bad choices even when they've been you know given a good opportunity just continue to make bad choices And and it's because there are just all of these forces acting against them in every aspect of their life and so sometimes they make bad choices because it's the only choice they know how to make. And sometimes they make bad choices because uh, it's, a, it's a gamble and they're hoping that there's, a, that there's a payoff or they're hoping that they'll be able to get away with something. Uh, and I mean, you know, whether Shameless is a good or bad show is 
not necessarily relevant, <laughs> but but just in that when you talk to like, you know, rich folk, people that happen to be judges and stuff, like they the the idea of crime in the United States is predicated on this idea that everybody's a rational actor, okay? And mm-hmm. everybody is making rational decisions. Everybody is beginning with the same set of priors and is making decisions, you know, based on, well, if I do this, then if I do A, then B will happen. And if I do X, then Y will happen. And if I, and, but I can't do Z because Z is outlawed. And if I do Z, then this will happen. But the reality of the situation is, is that no one's starting with the same priors. Nobody, most of the people who are committing offenses are not necessarily rational actors, certainly not to the same degree to which, you know, uh, a, a, say a person committing white collar crime is a rational actor versus the way uh, a person, you know, shoplifting at Walmart is a rational actor. There, it, it's not to say that the shoplifter is, 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 is stupid or whatever. It's just to say that there are different societal factors imposing, I, imposing and exerting, you know, will and forces on these people that that are just different and it makes the the gamble or the uh the risk that the shoplifter is taking more palatable than mm-hmm. than say the white collar crimesman. I don't know if any of that necessarily is making sense, but uh No, no, totally. But so 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 that's what conflict criminology tries to tries to identify. And then within conflict criminology there is uh there is another strain called radical or or marxist criminology and what that does is that identifies the problem specifically as capitalism that 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 these problems are an irreconcilable aspect of of a capitalist system and that the the point is not the the problem is not going to be solved by creating new laws or uh, abolishing other laws that in order to create, in order to solve the problem of why people are creating crime, we have to uh, to actually change the system that puts these people in a position where they don't have a choice but to make crime. Right. So it's about what I thought it would be then. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I uh, in the article that you wrote, which. Is there is it hosted online anywhere? Uh, it's on like my uh, academia page and uh, my. So I could link it in the show notes, yeah, and people would be can, able to access we it. Can, so the article I wrote is uh, um, it's called "Understanding Crime and Capitalism: uh, A Critique of American Criminal Justice," and it's an introduction to Marxist jurisprudence. Uh, it was published by a journal from the Charlotte School of Law, which has since gone the way of old yeller the school <laughs> the, the school's not there anymore it, it lost its accreditation and uh, and is gone and i guess my article along with it but it's still up on my like academia page so yeah you'll be able to link to it so people can check it out okay cool but one of the things that i that i address in the article with respect to uh, understanding why people commit crimes and this is partially i guess my own idea but certainly influenced by you know all, all all of the folks I cite in the article is that I I think of crime as um, I think of all crime as a thing that either is intended to affirm or subvert an existing set of power relations 
that if right. you're not understanding the uh, relationship between the offender and the complainant or the offender and the victim, if you're not understanding that power dynamic, then you're missing the point of why this person has been placed in a position where they're committing crime. Even in situations where there, it's a so-called victimless crime, uh, like just like simple drug possession, where from the state's perspective, the uh, victim is society at large. Okay, well, so it's, it's society at large. That means it's the it's the it's the state that's seeking to impose this punishment on this person for for possessing for possessing this you know marijuana or cocaine or whatever the hell it is, and so if we're not if we're not understanding the power dynamic between the 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 drug user and the state, then we're missing the point of why this person has you know transgressed, and if we're not understanding why the trans why the transgression occurred then we can't pretend that we want to prevent the transgression from occurring in the future. We can pretend that we want to be punitive, and that's often what we do. We engage in punitive and retributive uh, tactics, but a lot of times we're pretending like we're trying to solve the problems. And I, I think that that's, that's all, you know, that's kayfabe. I think it's nonsense. I don't think anybody's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't think anybody's trying yeah, to solve it. It's utterly irrecon- that, that The position that the criminal system in the United States is uh, ex- exists to uh, reduce the amount of crime in, that occurs in the world is utterly irreconcilable with uh, the reality of of that criminal system. Right? Which I, I think was a, a point that you make in the art, or that you allude to. I don't. I don't know if you sort of draw out the details on it, but uh, in, in your article is precisely that. The United States has among the higher crime rates in the uh, industrialized mm-hmm. world, while also having among the highest, or not among the highest, by far the highest incarceration rate uh, right. in the history of the world. And those harsh punitive measures are often framed as justice for those for the victims involved. That generally doesn't take into consideration whatsoever whether or not the victims actually want this these harsh penalties placed on uh, the people that are, um, you know, the people that have committed these crimes. Right. Um, I think victims are sort of used as a, uh, as an excuse uh, more than anything else. I mean, it's, it's very cynical. I mean, everything about our legal system is incredibly cynical. It's uh, especially when you take into consideration the, the fact that our, the enormous size of the carceral state goes hand in hand with the rise of private prisons well uh, yeah one thing that i think is is uh is a problem when we're talking about uh you know uh the carceral state and 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 victims is what prosecutors and law enforcement either don't understand or are so de-incentivized from understanding is that often people call the police because not because they not because necessarily a crime has occurred or because they need somebody arrested. People, especially people in poor communities, will call the police because they need a mediator, because they, they need somebody to solve a problem that, that they can't figure out. And too often, yeah. when law enforcement gets involved, the problem becomes escalated. And, yeah. and law enforcement starts developing a lot of uh, policies like mandatory arrest policies for for certain offenses. And uh, a lot of times it's it's not a situation where, you know, 
an arrest needs to have occurred. But because law enforcement, uh, for instance, driving while intoxicated offenses, you know, however, however heinous people, you know, want to think driving while intoxicated is, there's a lot of incentive to prosecute those cases because of different grant money that comes to uh, to the counties. And so it's very difficult to just get those cases dismissed because they want to keep getting that money. Family violence cases, there's a lot of de-incentive to dismiss those cases, even when the complainant does not want to participate in the prosecution or where the complainant has recanted or retracted the accusation. The DA's office doesn't dismiss those cases for a couple of reasons. One, because they have sort of a paternalistic and patriarchal view of their role as uh, law enforcers. And two, because they receive funding through, I can't remember, I I guess it's through VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, They receive a lot of funding that way. And so a lot of counties have developed these specialty uh, courts, these specialty family violence courts, uh, where all of those cases get routed through, and there's not a lot of incentive to make contact with the complainant, make sure that their wishes are being honored, and and so the DA's offices have kind of let a lot of those cases fall by the wayside and just figured out ways to prosecute them without contacting the complainant, without making sure that this is what the complainant wants. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Hey everyone, just a reminder that we now have a Patreon with exclusive content. As for now, it's going to stay at $2 and it will just have whatever we feel like throwing up there and it won't be in any regular fashion. Hopefully we'll be able to become more regular with our exclusive content and then maybe at that point we will create a second tier with all the really good stuff on it. But for now, there's one tier, it's $2, go ahead and go sign up. Also, like us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and please remember to rate, subscribe, and review us on iTunes so that more people can find us. And as always, please just share our stuff with your friends. And if you've got ideas of things that you would like to hear us talk about, books you would like to see us review, or anything like that, Go ahead and send us a private message on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. All right, back to the episode. A useful way to think about it, uh, uh, the the way that the, the whole criminal system operates is a recognition of the ideological justification that most people hold in their heads or profess for the existence and the, the manner of operation of the criminal system is so divergent from the manifest uh, functionality of that criminal system that uh, I, I think you have to recognize on one side uh, the operations of ideology and the other on, on, and on the other side the operations of uh, the interests of uh, the dominant economic system that underlies the world we live in. But there is, as you uh, started to allude to earlier, Stephen, um, a critical legal tradition that is expressly uh, looking to subvert or or poke holes in or, uh, I guess, revolutionize that legal system entirely. Uh, But I I hope I'm not jumping ahead too much. 
one aspect of your article that really stood out to me was beginning in footnote 36 um, and then the successive couple of footnotes after that. It really You really draw out the consistent opinion uh, among legal scholars in the Western world that there, uh, it, that there really isn't much of a thing uh, that exists that you could refer to as Marxist jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. So could, uh, could you uh, talk about that a bit? Sure. So, uh, I mean, it's a fair question to ask, you know, whether something like Marxist jurisprudence or a Marxist theory of law even exists. Um, and, and, on, and I think probably most of the more uh, radical Marxists would say that, no, it doesn't exist. The law is, is a bourgeois institution uh, meant to protect the interests of the ruling class, and it's something that, that, that doesn't exist but for capitalism or but for oppressive modes of production. Uh, and so Marx and Engels didn't write a whole lot about the law, and there are not a lot of um, explicitly Marxist scholars that have spent a lot of time thinking about what, what law should look like. Um, there are really only two that I that you know existed and that I reference in, in the piece. You know, I'll, I'll butcher the hell out of these names, but uh, yeah, they're fucking unpronounceable. <laughs> I'll butcher these names. <laughs> oh, come on, guys. Uh, but uh, Pasukanis and Stuva, Peter Stuva, those were really the only two Soviet legal theorists that were sort of engaged in trying to figure out exactly what a Marxist legal system. Uh, would look like. Pashukani, of course, wrote his, I, I guess it was the Marxist, the general uh, Marxist theory of law, and uh, Stuka kind of criticized that quite a bit because uh, Pashukani was um, trying to develop sort of a functional or working model of law that would exist in the transition period from, from socialism into full communism. Mm-hmm. And Stuka had sort of sort of oppose that. And then, of course, Pashukani gets, after Lenin passes, gets labeled an enemy of the state and, and, uh, and is disappeared. What did, he, what did he do to get disappeared, like to become an enemy of the state? Do you know? I, I mean, to, only to the extent that, you know, what we know about everybody else. That uh, <laughs> Oh, he was a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, he was... He was close with Lenin, from what I understand, and and anybody that was close with Lenin that could have said Stalin was not Lenin's buddy didn't last very long, <laughs> and and you know Pachikani I guess was was one of those cats, um, and then so the only the only real yeah fascist confirmed the only real. Um, <laughs> Russian legal scholar or Soviet legal scholar that sort of survived and achieved any notoriety is uh, Vyshinsky, who was the uh, the prosecutor for the uh, Stalin show trial. So Vyshinsky is oh, prosecuted yeah. Trotsky in absentia, oh, and right. so so you don't have a lot to draw from in terms of these sort of models that have existed, either you know purporting to be Marxist or communist. Like I can't. I can't go to, um, even though I have some of those books, I can't go to, like, the uh, Soviet Code of Criminal Procedure, Soviet Code of Civil Procedure, and then, you know, look in the footnotes and see all of these references to, you know, capital 
or you know the 18 like that's it's not going to it's not yeah. going to be in there um but uh what i will say is that uh the reason that a lot of marxists don't pay much attention to the law is is because they don't want to concern themselves with what marxists term uh legal fetishism and it's right. and it's this idea that that law is a necessary or um, desirable aspect of a civil society because it sort of presupposes some like nasty things about humanity. If murder wasn't mm-hmm. illegal, we'd all be killing each other. No, of course not. But where I think a lot of Marxists are are wrong not to pay attention to the law is 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 because. It's not to say that we need to outlaw murder in order for people to know that murder is bad. It's more like even in full communism, people still need to know what day they put out the trash. Like there, there has to be there, and and there ha, there has to be rules. There ha, there has to be some understanding, some codified understanding of of you know when and how things are supposed to happen. Uh, if the yeah. if the idea is that uh, we're going to be more resource conscious under full communism, right? The idea that that we're not going to um, to to exploit the earth the way that we do under capitalism, well, then we we have to have some sort of codified understanding for when we've taken too much water out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to. And and we have to understand, we have to have some sort of codified understanding for what happens when we take too much. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Right. And what happens to the what person that, that did it? I mean, not to say that they did it, you know, with sort of criminal intent or whatever, but, but they did it. And what do we do about it? Like, there, there has to be an answer right. to that question. And so, right. and, the, and the notion of fairness, I think the, the the general notion of fairness asks of us to to say that we're we have some sort of consistency, and we're treating people uh, equally, and not you know one person isn't treated radically uh, uh, differently than uh, another similarly situated individual. Right. Right, and I mean, like, there's an argument to be made that structurelessness is tyrannical in it in and of itself. I mean, mm. like, if you mm-hmm. if if you've got no structure, you've got no system by which things are done then it makes it very easy for people to take advantage of the fact that there there's nothing in place to make sure that no one is doing that mm-hmm. you know yeah. but 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 Stephen, the the question or, or a question that comes to mind based on what the, the argument that you're making is that um occurs to me is that it seems like you're describing uh, effectively like a regulatory apparatus that would be left remaining as the sort of shell of what used to be a state um and that's uh, uh, that apparatus or apparatuses are the 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 machines through which humanity collectively organizes and gets shit done and does the things that that uh, that it wants to accomplish through its own sort of collective collaborative or democratic deliberation but Primarily, the thing that's evacuated out of that is force. Uh, you no longer have an entity that is endowed with the monopoly on the right to use force, which is uh, the police and military. Yeah. The thing that really interests me about, uh, as a Marxist, about law is that I that your article draws out a, a total, a complete and total lack of is a concern with uh, consciously and intentionally drawing up socialist law that is intended to transition a society from capitalist society wherein we do need to have a state that uses force to impose its will 
uh, to uh, uh, a, um, a fully liberated communist society at some eventual horizon, rather than just sort of assuming that it will just magically happen if we just don't pay attention that closely to it clearly was not the case uh, at any point within the Soviet Union. Right. Well, so you mentioned um, sort of uh, the law becoming not necessarily criminal law in the sense that we understand it now, you know, um, which is enforced through the coercive arm of the state. Uh, and and that was, that was Lenin's idea, was that if there was law, uh, codified law, that it was going to be more regulatory and it wasn't going to be like uh, a penal code in the sense that we understand it now. Right. And and that and then the 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 fact that nobody kind of thought about this ahead of time that was that sort of speaks to the heart of the um, of the dispute as I understand it between Pashukanis and Stuva uh, was that Pashukanis thought that we needed to develop this model so people knew how to conduct their affairs. Uh, in the period of transition. And Stuva said, as I understand it, um, no, we figure this out in the doing. In in creating this new society, we will figure out the the way that, uh, that, that we need to conduct order, the way that we need to, uh, to make sure things are done. Because, and, and I, I use the analogy... Uh, in, in the piece is is telling the, the, the argument has always been that um, telling people to develop sort of a working model of socialist law is like asking uh, you know slaves in Egypt uh, to give us capitalist law to, to you know come up with the, the modern code of criminal procedure or whatever right. it's, it's just in a lot of ways not possible um, but at the same time, there has to be some some thought to this. There has to be some some way to have a, a because what you see uh, shortly after October 1917 is nobody knew what the hell to do whenever yeah. whenever uh, whenever you had um, instances of say you know counter revolution. They had these sort of ad hoc tribunals with um, sort of unlettered persons. And, you know, of course, nothing inherently wrong with that. And, of course, most people are unlettered in Russia at that time. But you had sort of just the regular person occupying the role of prosecutor one minute or one day, and then the next day they'd be the defense attorney. And and, and so nobody has any kind of concept of, of, uh, of what rules... Are we are we enforcing? How are we making these decisions? And uh, what what conclusions do we need to reach if we decide that person A committed offense X? And I, I just I don't see how any and you know using air quotes here revolutionary you know Marxist can make pretense at being a revolutionary without thinking about what shit is supposed to look like. When, you know when the revolution occurs, if it occurs, and, and frankly, it sounds to me like the the argument against Pashakanis that you're presenting here, entirely, frankly, to me, sounds like an argument for the arbitrary dictate of the of the party, that the party should be uninhibited by any sense of fairness or um, rationality, and it should be able to just imp, imp, uh, implement its will uninhibited. 
that actually brings up a larger question. And uh, I've come around to the idea relatively recently that we should be constructing the socialist future in our heads and talking about it and talking about how we think we would deal with problems and how we think we would set up institutions. In the past, specifically in the third camp Trotskyist left, we were always told, you know, who are we to even consider what it's going to be like? You know, we're not making the revolution. It'll be up to those who make the revolution. But I think that it's a, a good mental exercise, you know, to be able to conceive of the world we would like to build and talk about it with people. And I, that goes doubly for law, you know? Yeah. This, there is – Kautsky did a little bit of mental exposition whenever he was writing about the future socialist society and what that transition would look like. And I think it's incredibly eye-opening, and I think that we should all engage in that a little bit more. And in defense of the Russians, you know, they, I don't think that they expected to take power as quickly as they did, yeah. you know? No. I yeah, mean, <laughs> absolutely. That, that shit happened, you know, between February and October. Right. And, uh, and they were but, they were a little preoccupied with certain things going on at the time. Right, so, like, well, it's it's not so much that uh, I I take umbrage with you know, and as hard, it, I mean, it's difficult to take umbrage with with anything that anyone did under those particular circumstances. Um, right. But what where I do take umbrage is the sort of open hostility once it occurred to developing a, a working model of what. A, oh, a, I agree. Po- I agree. Post-revolution, yeah, and and that comes even from you know Lenin and Trotsky. This sort of hostility to to codifying these things. Yeah, they uh, inadvertently created a big fucking mess for everyone else to deal with after they right, died. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, right. And, and Chris, I, th- I think the thing to keep in mind the the important counterweight to like point that you're making that I, I agree with. I think is that we should concern ourselves with drawing up solutions to problems that actually confront us and we should be yes. we we should be like putting together like okay here is how we solve this problem right rather than sort of like the utopian socialists just drawing up elaborate blueprints for the perfect society that and how every like little all the buttons piece are will, on the back yeah, of the shirt how everything <laughs> so fits have together to have cooperation yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, and this is this is how democracy. I, I don't know. It's 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 kind of a bizarre argument. The the thing that we're all that argument that we're we all from the tradition that we came out of. The three of us came out of. It's a kind of a bizarre argument. It's like how do you think democracy works other than people having a variety of ideas available to them to debate out? Like, and you don't get to the point of having a variety of ideas available to people to debate out and and then hence take forward and try to enact uh, without participating in the proffering of ideas. Right. Well, I, I take the, I, I get what, I'm just going to go ahead and name the ISO. I take <laughs> what the ISO was getting at um, when they were telling us they didn't want us to be constructing the future socialist society and talking about it because they were an organization and they didn't want to lay claim to the, to being the vanguard and having the solution to the way that the future socialist society is going to look. But Honestly, uh, you know, I don't have any sort of democratic centralism keeping me from doing that now (laughs) because I'm in the DSA. I can do whatever the fuck I want. That is the good thing about the DSA. Not reading. And the bad things. Not reading reading or thinking is my praxis. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Love the DSA. (laughs) So where I think we've gotten a little far afield, but... um, Yeah, sorry about that. That's probably my bad. Thinking about... um, 
what these systems look like, we do have to be able, going back to the, the, the initial kind of starting point of this conversation, we have to be able to look at, you know, what Marx and Engels wrote and and figure out what it is that they said, if anything, that gives us some kind of of guide for how we're supposed to be, you know, conducting these interpersonal relationships. And um, I, I think that there's a real dearth of material from them. But where there is something is, to my mind, is is understanding crime and, and criminology. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why I, I kind of got interested in it. And so I, I think that there are some some things and some terms that Mark kind of coins that are that are useful. Things like alienation and exploitation uh, help us kind of understand why people in uh, certain situations become so desperate and and turn to committing crimes. Uh, I think that um, things like false consciousness, to the extent that that's a you know uh, uh, you know valid. Uh, term these days uh kind of helps under i'll allow its usage <laughs> <on the podcast. laughs> kind of helps uh helps understand you know uh why people uh, like why why does some fucking chud have that uh thin blue line flag on the back of his car like i i i think that that's that those things are useful in that they help us understand why a certain class of people tries to identify so much with the coercive arm of the state, with law enforcement, despite the fact that, you know, given the opportunity, uh, law enforcement would light them the fuck up, uh, you know, without hesitation. And the thinking specifically of, um, of people that get labeled criminal and, and why they commit crimes, the, the term that I was most interested in is uh, the concept of the lumpen proletariat. Good. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask um, you. Yeah, that was definitely among the most interesting parts of your article, in my opinion. Absolutely. So shout out to Michael, who hooked me up with the very hard to find article by uh, Marxist Hal Draper called The Concept of the Lumpen Proletariat in, uh, in Marx and Engels, which I, I had been struggling to find a copy of this. I saw it in a footnote of, uh, of one of the books that I have on, on Marxism and law and Marxism and criminal law. Uh, and I could never find this damn thing. And Michael found it for me and sent it to me. And that is sort of the premier work on understanding the concept of the lumpen proletariat as Marx intended it. And, uh, and, and it is sort of a fuzzy concept. Like it's, it's not super well-defined, uh, but Marx uh, sort of defined it, and, and, and Draper kind of defined it based on uh, Marx's wording, that the lumpen proletariat was an ill-defined constituent of parasitic elements, social scum, counter-revolutionaries, vag- and vagabonds capable of the basest banditry and the foulest corruption. These were the people that, uh, you know, were certainly not bourgeoisie. Uh, were, these were, were poor folks. Uh, that you could not count on to be recruited into the ranks of the revolutionary working class. These were people that you you didn't give a red card to. Uh, you weren't letting them in the in the door. Right. Uh, and so the the idea was that Marx kind of used the term lumpen proletariat as a way to write off the criminal underclass by mm-hmm. and large. And so because Marx 
so routinely refers to that as sort of a criminal underclass. These are people that are committing the offenses. There was uh, there was an instance where uh, oh it's in here somewhere. The uh, they had been brought into um, sort of a revolutionary moment, and the the lumpen element of the uh, of the movement started breaking the windows and uh, and looting a jewelry store and some other things, committing tons of property damage, and so th- these would have been like the uh, the black block kids, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> these, this is block. This is black block uh, in uh, in you know in uh, the Civil War in France. Googles yeah, and yeah. Wookies. Yes. Uh, so um, so yeah, Marx would have been hostile to the idea of black block, uh, to the idea of like propaganda of the deed type behavior, and and he would yeah. have he would have considered that behavior to be sort of uh, sort of lumpen, and so uh, but the other. Uh, the other way that, that Marx kind of referred to lumpen folk is as the hangers on of the rich and powerful. Uh, and so to my mind, that kind of illustrates sort of this, uh, this finance or well, a couple things, but one of the things is sort of like this finance class, like they're not bourgeoisie in the, you know, Marxist sense of the word and that they don't really control any of the means of production. Uh, they're, they're, they're basically just gamblers. They're just, they're just gambling on, on this, uh, open air market. Uh, and sort of like Donald Trump. Then, huh? Well, to the, <laughs> to the, oh, I mean, or at least his, his sons, I, I mean, Trump actually owns real estate. And so a lot of these, a lot right. of these finance, you know, guys don't actually own anything. They just have their money tied up in various investments, um, without okay. actually owning any of the properties or employing anybody. Donald Trump actually employed people and owned things. Uh, whereas, yeah. you know, the people that just like live on the dividends from their, uh, you know, um, Apple investment in 1999, uh, those people don't, I mean, to the extent that they own a stock in Apple, I guess, uh, but they're just living on money that they don't earn, sort of uh, dead labor, as it were. And the other way I think of it is uh, not just the finance class, but to me, to my mind, the classic example of, uh, of the lumpen proletariat is so... That's the most interesting part of your article. So, I, I mean, to my mind, uh, so law enforcement, these are not like wealthy people. Uh, law enforcement often, you know, the police often come from working class backgrounds. They even have a, you know, air quote union. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they think of themselves as, you know, rank and file members of their of their union. And there are a, a lot of uh, a lot of folks that uh, notable among them, the DSA cop, who thought that these <laughs> th- these kind of folks were 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 part of the working class movement because they were low income, because they didn't necessarily own any means of production in the uh, in the or have control over any means of production in the Marxist sense of the word. But if we're talking about the hangers on of the rich and powerful. I mean, who who more fits 
into that uh, phrase than than law enforcement, whose sole job is to, you know, protect the property interests of the rich and powerful, and who, despite being from working class backgrounds, overwhelmingly identify with with the ruling class, with the interests of the ruling class, being conservative, being reactionary, being incredibly right wing. Um, so and and also being people that you can't trust to recruit into working class movements. Uh, I, I mean, if 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 we're going to talk about, um, you know, what sort of poor people can be counted on to be good little revolutionaries, uh, I mean, I will take the, you know, the the guy at the methadone clinic before I will take ninety nine point nine percent of of anybody wearing a badge right now. Oh, absolutely. So I, I, I think that, to, to my mind, if, if lumpen proletariat is a useful phrase, and I think probably the overwhelming majority of, of, uh, of the overwhelming majority of, uh, of, of people that sort of study Marx and consider themselves Marxists, I think that the consensus is that the lumpen proletariat is not a uh, useful or meaningful um, sort of identity, uh, for lack of a better word. But, but I think that it. it Using the term lumpen proletariat and kind of using that analogy to law enforcement, I think, is a good way to help explain to uh, those comrades in the DSA and elsewhere who would like to to bring in uh, law enforcement and, and their union into into this struggle. So reading your article, I was struck by um, the, the the similarities between. You know, I mean, I've, I've been watching The Sopranos again <laughs> recently, and uh, the concept of the lumpen proletariat and the lumpen bourgeoisie being very well illustrated in the, the institution of the mafia mm-hmm. and the way that they understand themselves as being very similar to that of the police. You know, they've got duty, they've got honor, they've got a, a, a thing that they do and all the evils they commit, they do in the name of a greater good to, you know, in their own minds, right? And uh, it made me think that someone really should do like a uh, a Marxist podcast where they just discuss the Sopranos episode by episode. <laughs> but sorry, Kevin, I, I I said that dumb shit right as you were about to say something, which is probably way smarter. No, 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 you're good. That uh, that is actually um, relevant. One of the I uh, so I kind of have a have some difficulty wrapping my head around the uh, the 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 classification of police as lump and proletariat. In um, in that it makes sense to me, as I understand the category, to put people who are outside of the formal economy uh, and thus don't have a direct relationship to the means of production in the sense that uh, a pe- you know a peasantry would or uh, a merchant class would or that uh, a working class or a capitalist class would so uh, or um, or a petty petit bourgeois class a middle uh, i.e. A, a middle class i understand the relationship that, that all of these classes have to the means of production and thus um a lumpen proletariat being outside of the formal economy being a, a separate categorization um so it makes sense to have to put you know uh beggars and thieves and um uh grifters and drug dealers professional criminals People who are outside of the formal economy in this category of lumpen uh, proletariat, and then as as you sort of 
if if you exist in this category and have access to large amounts of money, so like you inherited a fortune from your parents, or your uh, or or you are a really fucking successful art thief or something like that, uh, you could consider this a sort of uh, lumpen bourgeois. But uh, I don't understand how that relationship to the means of production can be applied to police uh, in a a manner that doesn't similarly exclude other state employees who don't use force to enact the law. Well, to to me, I think that that using uh, these lumpen concepts, uh, to to me, I don't think that they that they do a very good job of, of explaining a material position to to me when I read Marx talk about the lumpen proletariat or anyone else like that almost sounds like identity politics to me like it's it's not necessarily explaining a relationship to the means of production so much as it is explaining uh, this is a person that you just you, you don't have any 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 use for in terms of being able to uh, to to build the the kind of movement and the kind of society that you want to be able to build these are people that you can exclude and so law enforcement of course that they don't own the means of of production they don't they don't hmm. they don't write the laws they don't all, all they do is in, is enforce the law and it's their um it's the way that they self identify their own allegiance to to the ruling class that makes them lumpen or or in the case of say the 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 thieves and beggars that for whatever reason we don't think can be counted on to be to be brought into the revolutionary working class these are people that that don't identify with the with the proletariat in the in the way that marx intended class consciousness to be a reflection of of your identity uh with your material position so, sure, but couldn't that also be be said just as well of firefighters who largely uh, act to protect the property of, you know, productive property owned by capital and uh, wealthy homes, as well as protecting, you know, putting out fires elsewhere as as well. But I mean, firefighters go go where they need to go. They don't they don't exercise discretion in how they apply their position the way that law enforcement does law enforcement Mm -hmm. is constantly exercising discretion and who they're going to enforce laws against i mean Mm -hmm. i mean if you spend any time downtown in a metropolitan area you see the way law enforcement has decided we're going to police the hell out of out of this downtown area because this is where uh poor people tend to congregate and we're going to make sure that they don't you know, bother any of the tourists or whatever right. the hell. Right, Enforce, enforcement enforcement of drug laws are, are, are a readily apparent, you know, uh, representation of exactly what you're talking about. But I, and I don't want to take us down like a, a super big rabbit hole here uh, to belabor this point any further. But I, I don't know. I feel like I keep like raising more questions. It's such an interesting question to me, and this just keeps raising further questions in my mind. Uh, so well, then, it, but then if we're identifying the um, um, maybe not the existence of, of discretion, but the extreme discretion that they uh, have afforded to them in their um, um, in the manner in which they go about their job. That, that doesn't seem like 
that seems like that's something that that can be addressed. Like you you remove the discretion from their ability to, uh, you know, you enact laws that removes their discretion to police uh, to differential uh, policing, and that resolves that issue. Perhaps I mean my my theory of of uh, what would fix policing is to abolish patrol in general uh, and mm. and make police function more like uh, more like EMS make police function more like firefighters where you come when we call you kind of thing um, and and yeah I was gonna I, ask you I, I think that. that 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 would solve a lot of the problems in terms of the way in which you know they uh, they over police poor communities uh, but 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 again I think of this in terms of of the way that these people self-identify. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that firefighters necessarily, or, or at least not a majority of firefighters, uh, identify with the ruling class, with the bourgeoisie and the interests of the bourgeoisie the way that the, way that the police do. I don't know, man. Uh, police and firefighter unions uh, are like hand in hand in their own self-identification as to like what kind of interests they see themselves upholding. They firefighter unions tend to be extremely conservative, um, and they see tend to see themselves uh, as being uh, um, like attached at the hip to to police unions. Uh, uh, maybe. I mean, the the firefighters union here in San Antonio is is pretty left-leaning really one of the reps has gone to like dsa meetings and stuff and so and then of course we know uh chris and i know know jens who is a friend of ours who was a firefighter yeah. uh yeah and of course he's a good reliable marxist um so I, I mean i just and it's not to say that that individual police officers can't in their own private capacity have Marxist ideas or Marxist allegiances. It's, it's the, the function of their, of their job, the function of their role in society right. is, right. is, is, uh, is an irreconcilable conflict. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's yeah. an irreconcilable I just, conflict. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, and, but I, for some, uh, maybe, maybe this is an argument to, to continue into the future, but I can't seem <laughs> to make the categories fit in my head in a way that, uh, that I can put my arms around and feel comfortable with that removes police from the category of working class in a way that that seems coherent to me. What I would say and what I, I typically say as a, a following statement to that is the function of the police are to be class traitors in the mm-hmm. same way that a, you know, a Frederick Engels was a class traitor, but it just in reverse. So, I mean, there's a school of thought among Marxists that the proletariat only exists in as much as it realizes its world historic potential. So that like, the working class is the working class, right? But that if they do not realize the, their potential to overthrow capitalism and their, their, their collective might, then they're, they don't quite function as the proletariat should function, you know? But um, if, you, if, you, if you could argue that convincingly, then I would say that that makes what Stephen's saying about the police being lumpen proletarian. Mm-hmm makes make a little bit more mm. sense and i think that there, the example that you drew from Stephen, was of the uh the lazaroni yeah. in naples who, who were sort of the napolitan uh lumpen proletariat categorized as like beggars and thieves and whatnot 
who were absolutely reactionary and you know basically fought on the side of the uh, of the monarchy to to oppose revolution mm-hmm. in Italy and to oppose the French when they invaded. Yeah, and uh, basically were uh, sold themselves as police to put down a rebellion and soldiers to fight against the French. And uh, you know that I, I can see that I, I can see. It, it makes sense to me that abandoning your class identity and embracing the function of oppressor could remove you from being working class in a way that being a soldier does not. Right. You know exactly, what I mean? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I'm, that, that's not a hundred percent like you know clear in my mind either, but it is intriguing, and I'm definitely willing to like figure this. Yeah, out absolutely. By talking about it, I, I really that was probably my favorite part of your article was. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, was that? Well, well, yeah. well uh, I, I've got like a Dropbox link, and we'll uh, we'll link to the Hal Draper uh, article as well, so that folks can uh, can access that because that really is, yeah. Uh, not a lot of people really talk about the concept of the lumpen proletariat anymore, and, and like I said, I think that that most modern Marxists have sort of abandoned it uh, uh, as a as a concept that has any value unless you're a Maoist and then you think you should harm them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not all Maoists, not all Maoists, <laughs> not, all Maoists. not all Maoists, but yeah. And so, so that's, that's the police. And that was, that was kind of my take on, on the police in the article. Before we get off the police altogether, I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the necessity of policing under capitalism? We have lots of, lots of Marxists, lots of leftists are police abolitionists. Mm-hmm and want to abolish the entire institution of policing within the framework of our capitalist system now. Do you think that is desirable or something that would even be possible? Well, or what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? On the, like, what do we do about the police now? Well, I, I mean, my, my thought, of course, is I think that there are, there are steps that can be taken to ameliorate the sort of ill effects of law enforcement. Uh, I... I I think abolishing patrol, uh, as uh, abolishing things like patrol and and community policing, where so the idea in the uh, in the in the 1980s, I guess it was, was uh, community policing was this new sort of in vogue method of sort of implanting law enforcement in the communities. If you were in a neighborhood, you were going to know the cop that's assigned to your neighborhood by the by his first name. You were going to have his, you know, pager number or whatever, and you were going to be able to be in direct contact with that person. And because you had a more interpersonal relationship with the law and with the officer that was sort of in charge of your area, that was going to make people less inclined to break laws because, uh, you know, I'm not just... I'm not just breaking the law. I'm disappointing Officer Jimmy, who uh, who knows me, and I don't I don't want to have to be confronted with Officer Jimmy, who you know is friends with my dad or whatever. Um, and so, <laughs> the the idea was that by increasing interaction with law enforcement, that was going to make people one have more respect for law enforcement and two have more respect for the law. And the problem is what we found out is that the inverse is true. As you increase interactions with law enforcement you're increasing the likelihood that somebody is going to be uh is going to be arrested you're increasing the likelihood that someone is going to be victimized by law enforcement uh and so to my mind the solution then is to we have to do more to limit the interactions 
between people and law enforcement. The, the starkest example to my mind is uh, school resource officers. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is, there is no data to support the idea that school resource officers make schools more safe. No. Uh, in fact, it, they just make people more arrested in schools. Uh, and it, and it creates a much different environment. You feel less like you're in a school and more like you're in sort of an open air prison. So Texas, not too long ago, uh, decriminalized truancy, and uh, and I wrote a, a another article for uh, uh, the scholar St. Mary's Law Review on race and social justice about um, about truancy and its effect on the sort of school to prison pipeline. And um, one of the things that I found in writing that article uh, was the schools that started using these school resource officers, it, it, all of a sudden you're getting more kids that are being suspended, more kids that are being expelled, more kids that are being arrested. Uh, having the school resource officer there did not make disciplinary issues any less frequent. In fact, they, they increased mm-hmm. in most, in most cases. And so, yeah, so I think we need to be able to um, decrease just the everyday interactions with law enforcement. I, I think I, I think that the, the sort of easiest way to understand this is uh, when you're when you're driving and you see a cop behind you, you don't automatically feel oh, more hell safe. No. Like, like <laughs> your 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 immediate response to seeing a cop behind you is not hey my buddy is is here to make sure that you know there's no drunks that are gonna hit me. And that's great. I'm glad Officer Jimmy's here. No, nobody thinks that. And and, and so that's that's just me as as like a white guy. I see I see law enforcement. Yeah. And I immediately get you know anxious. I'm thinking and and immediately start going in my head the script of what I'm going to say when the officer comes up to my window. And I hadn't done anything wrong at that point. I haven't been like lit up. He's not like trying to pull me over. But I'm already thinking about okay if he pulls me over, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, looking to make sure, you know, I don't have anything that's like in disarray in my car that would, you know, make him decide to say for no reason that he smells marijuana or something because they will just fucking yeah. do that. They'll say they, yeah, absolutely. Cause that's all they have to say is I smell marijuana and then they can search your entire vehicle without a warrant. Yeah, but Jason and I, um, funny story. Yeah. A couple of straight Yeah. Like, we don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know why he's just being a dick. I assume, yeah, it totally ripped everything out of my car. Just left it on the side of the road and then drove yeah. off. So, so I mean, as soon as you see law enforcement, your immediate reaction is not things are going to be better. No, not at all. It's always, it's always you're you're const, you're immediately thinking about this can go south in a hurry, like very right. quickly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that that puts them to put it concisely uh, the the thrust of. What I, I think the point that Stevens make the goal should be to, uh, or what we should do is make specific demands on specific reforms to uh, policing as it exists in the world that work us in the direction of removing reliance on police to solve social problems which they don't actually solve, right. and uh, and moving toward uh, finding other ways to solve our social problems with the eventual aim of abolishing the police. Yeah, moving yeah. in the direction of of not having police as the solution to any problems, okay. right? But the 
so in the interim, the 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 incli- the what you do is when they say let's have school re- resource officers because this will solve X, Y, and Z problems. You you instead respond with specific demands of we can solve X, Y, Z problems better by funding more school counselors and school resource, uh, you know, wh- whatever um, other uh, social work sorts of pos- uh, positions and roles uh, in the schools and. Where you know where you need to make a, a reference to, uh, we need somebody with the right to use force to to prevent a, a violent individual from inflicting violence on others. Okay, then fine, you can call the police to come and arrive, just like you can do already. But adding a, a police officer into in the to be present on campus is not going to increase safety. We we need to solve our problems through other means. We need to make demands on reducing the amount of violence and the uh, the way that violence is capable of being inflicted uh, by set- making uh, specific demands of, of disarming mm-hmm. the police, for example. Eliminating but patrol. Like, these are things, ways to draw down the presence of this institution that is the monopoly on the use of force in our society that reduces that the presence of that institution in, in our lives. Yeah, law enforcement has to be disarmed and dematerial, uh, demilitarized. That's, that's sort oh, of... Yeah, yeah there, there's Non-negotiable, no right? So when I, was in, when I was in high school, it was before school resource officers started getting, you know, more, more common, and I was, I, I was in sort of a... Uh, less uh, affluent city Um, and so it was a 3A school which is a smaller school Uh, and so we didn't really have cops on campus but the the best method of dealing with a uh, disciplinary issue that arose between say two students was and a lot of folks thought it was cheesy but peer mediation I don't know if any of you ever experienced peer mediation whenever you were in school, mm-hmm. but but there was a way in which you could sort of uh, petition for, you know, two or three students who were in your school could come and sit down and with you and the person you were having a problem with uh, mediate that dispute. And the problem that we have is there is no there is no taxpayer funded mediation service that people have access to other than the courts and law enforcement. And often there's, there's disputes about, I I need this person to, to, you know, leave my house or leave this relationship or give me back this thing that they took. And so calling law enforcement or trying to go through the courts escalates that problem significantly. Whereas if there was a way to, to employ counselors, therapists, psychologists, and the like, as sort of in the field peer mediators, I think we would be able to to deal with a lot of these disputes in ways that don't result in criminal charges, in ways that don't result in in uh, in in violence or having to resort to the coercive arm of the state. Uh, and so that's a, that's another tactic that I think we could employ. And interestingly, that's the tactic that the Catalonians in 1930s Spain employed during the, the Spanish Civil War. When, when the anarchists had taken control of, of Barcelona, they had abolished the police immediately. That was the, that was the first thing that they did. And when, you had a dis- and when you had a dispute, the way that the dispute would get resolved is it would be uh, just other people appealing to one another 
on the basis of shared class interests. You don't want to take thing X from person Y because we're in this, you know, struggle and this is these are the 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 the, the way that this sort of discord uh, impacts our shared struggle and, and and they're able to kind of talk through this issue in a way that allows people to understand to to contextualize their personal problems into a bigger picture. And so the I think that the concept of employing sort of in the field peer mediation rather than having to dial 911 to reach an officer all the damn time, I think would be a uh, would be an implementable solution that could that could work right now and also establish the alternative for what sort of law enforcement mechanism is going to exist, you know, in the dictatorship of the proletariat. Sworn to serve and protect, we get to kill it. Bass wearing fascist villain. 